Tonight I'd like to talk about beyond thought. I'd like to start um, by reading a little bit from a transcription of a talk that a man named Dr. Robert Thurman gave in America. And I was rather fascinated when I first heard this, so somebody else read this. Um, and I think I was taken by it so much because it's about um, the differences in our cultures, how in some cultures thinking isn't a problem at all. <laughs> Whereas <laughs> it seems like it really is in our culture. <laughs> And it kind of points that out, especially about the Tibetan culture. And I wanted to, to share this with you. He says, that one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate, he says, this is one of my favorite things to propose to people who meditate. Westerners are all taught from a very early age a certain form of intensive mental patterning, but not Asians. I love to ask Tibetans to add up in their heads 9,473 and 6,722. A Tibetan cannot do this. They absolutely will not be able to do that the most intelligent, great lama, whatever, they cannot do it. They go, huh? Say it again. (laughs) They won't do it. We can do it easily, almost any of us, because we can make a picture in our mind, visualize the numbers, put a line under it, then go zip, 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 carry one, two, three, four. We can visualize such things easily. We are taught since childhood to do such things in our heads. But in the Buddhist nations, like the Tibetans, for whom such meditative disciplines have been so much a part and parcel of their civilization and culture for so long, such as, such as the Tibetans, the norm is not to think much. This always makes me think of a story of Geshe Wangyo, Well, I was once very embarrassed about one old Mongolian gentleman who I thought I had been very rude rude to the day before. This day I was acting very nervous and very embarrassed. I was showing him all sorts of difference and asking him to come over here and sit over there, and he looked at me like I was totally nuts. He had no idea at all what I was doing. Deshi Wangle said, What are you doing? I said, well, yesterday I took a chair and I did this and that, and he had to sit down there, the old man, and I did a whole lot of things that had been very rude, and I was trying to make up for them. And the guest, she said, forget it. He doesn't even remember it. I said, what do you mean? He said, don't you know, my Mongolians, the one mistake never to make is they ever think, is to ever think they think about anything. (laughs) I always have to hit them on the head with a hammer to try to get them to think. (laughs) 
so therefore they are very relaxed. <laughs> they have a very relaxed culture, <laughs> a very friendly culture. They don't think about a lot of things. <laughs> On the contrary, their educational system has all sorts of ways of battering them and, and battering them to get them to think. <laughs> because there can be an excess of no thinking, <laughs> believe it or not. Even if you've learned that the secret way and the high and the great seal of perfection is like a clarified, luminous, and magnificent, marvelous state of non-thought, that's too simple. It's much more than non-thought. So it isn't just about not thinking. So I'd like to explore some assumptions we have about thought together. We have this habit of thinking that there is really only one way to know ourselves and our world, and we have this fairly heavy reliance on the intellect, on this way of knowing things. We usually assume, most of us assume, that the way that we think about things are the way things are. And then we believe the associated feelings that arise with the thought, thoughts and feelings. And we, we believe that that's what's true. And this is directly linked to how we create all our melodramas and our traumas. And through the activities of the day here, of sitting and walking, eating, showering, whatever else people are doing, we can see these habituated patterns of thinking. We think of the past, the memories, the regrets, the sorrows, replaying happy times, replaying sad times, the habit of thinking of future fantasies, worries about what might happen, how things are going to be, and the habit of even present commentaries, describing, commenting on what's happening now, just the thinking, going, going, analyzing, trying to figure things out. And I'm saying that perhaps there's another way to know our world which does not involve thinking. Is there some way to know about things without actually having to think about them? And this is really what this is about here, this, this way of awareness, of direct experience, direct knowing. In a direct experience, and this is just language, we have to intuit what the words mean here. In a direct experience, when there's breathing, there's just the breathing. We don't have to think about breathing. And there's sounds. There's just the hearing. There's the body. There's just the sensations in the body. When we hear a bird, we don't have to think about bird. We don't have to get involved in the concept of bird. We can just hear the, the 
suchness of the sound, the vibrations, the whatever word you want to put on it. We don't have to get involved in the concept of what's actually going on. In the same way, when we have a sensation in the body that we call pain, we don't actually have to get involved in the concept. There's something beyond the concept, the direct experience of the sensations themselves that can't be named, can't really be described. There's something else going on that the language can't touch. The same as when you hear a bell. just what it is. There's an experience, there doesn't need to be the thinking about it. Same with our emotions, our feelings. There's something going on, but we tend to get wrapped up in the story about it. But there's something else happening. If we feel directly, perhaps something else is going on than what we think is going on. Maybe if we let go of our stories, of our concepts, we might discover something incredibly new, something totally new. One time I was working with a a woman. In the interview, she said that she was working with all this fear It was the first day of the retreat. She said she was doing a lot of psychotherapy and she saw how much fear there was. And I I just asked her, I said, well, how do you know it's fear? And she said, well, I don't know. (laughs) I said, well, maybe it would be useful to inquire into how you know this is fear. Drop the story. Just feel what's going on just for a few days and then come back and tell me what you discover. So she actually couldn't understand what I was getting at at first, but she did. She went away and she kind of worked with, felt felt the sensations, experienced the sensations. And the next day she came back and she said, you know, there isn't really much fear. (laughs) I was mistaken. (laughs) She said, I had these sensations and I just assumed it was fear. I don't know why those sensations are there, but I feel much lighter. She said, I was making a lot more of it than it really was. So sometimes when we take a look at what's going on, we we kind of just go into it, investigate it. It's not actually what we thought it was. In fact, the story or the concept that we were carrying can be a lot heavier than the actuality. So so I think sometimes this might be the problem. What if we're making a mistake about how we're labeling our experience? About how we're describing our, our experience? What if we're actually not calling it by the right name and the name is getting us more entangled than we actually need to be? It's sort of like we make up stories and then we believe they're true without really questioning the story very much. It's sort of like the analogy of the primitive people painting t- 
tigers on the wall of their caves, and after they finish the painting, it's so realistic, they get scared and run out of the cave, like, oh my God, you know, a tiger, a tiger. You know? They become, <laughs> the stories become so realistic that we actually think they're true, they're real, and then we have to run away and protect ourselves. Maybe things just aren't so bad after all. <laughs> Maybe things are a lot better than we think. So I'm just pointing out to be careful, be watchful, because the mind can make mistakes. Sort of the classic example of this one is the snake and the rope story. When a man is walking down the forest path at twilight, and he sees a snake in the, on the path, and the fear just rages up. But something stops him from running the other way, and he looks a little more closely, and he sees that it's actually not a snake at all. It's a rope. So what was the cause of the fear? The cause of the fear is thinking that it was a snake, not the thing itself. Not the rope. The rope didn't cause the fear. It was the thought about what was going on. Of course, it's equally a problem if we think it's a rope. <laughs> We're walking down the road, we think, oh, it's just a rope, and it jumps out and bites you. <laughs> you know, you didn't take the necessary precaution. Because of the, again, the assumption in the mind, oh, well, it's just a rope. So we need to stay very alert as, as if we're walking through a forest. We need to stay very alert to what's going on, really not making any decisions, jumping to any conclusions until you see what's really there not forming any ideas. Is it possible to stay fresh? Not jumping to any conclusion about things. Not relying on the intellect to give us the answers, to give us the solutions. But, but, but more this way of direct seeing, direct awareness, which can lead to direct spontaneous action. We have a clear mind. And yet I'm not talking about stopping thought, because it's very easy to jump to the conclusion <laughs> that what this means is there should be no thought, no thinking. Because this will set up an idea of an awareness with no thought. And that's the wrong view. Because you've probably seen that you can't stop thought. You can't stop thought. It's like the nature of the mind. Thought arises and passes, arises and passes. It's the nature of the mind. The function of the mind. The function of the mind is to think and thoughts arise. If you try to stop the thoughts because you think they're bad or wrong, this actually sets up 
a conflict. I shouldn't be thinking. If I think that this is a distraction or an interference with the meditation, this will actually, this conflict will actually create more struggle and confusion and therefore more thought. The right view is not to be bothered about thoughts. Let them be. Just let them be. And yet be careful not to believe that they are revealing the truth of things. Another very famous Zen master from Japan, 17th century, he was very successful in conveying Zen to simple people. And he talked a lot of the unborn Buddha mind. That which is not born, therefore cannot die. That which is beyond duality, where all is unified in one. And he says, to try to stop your rising thoughts, holding them back and suppressing them is a bad idea. The original innate Buddha mind is one alone. It's never two. But when you try to stop your, your rising thoughts, your mind is split because your thoughts and your thoughts between your thoughts and your thoughts of stopping them. It's as if you're chasing after someone who is running away, except that you're both the runner and the one pursuing him as well. Let me give you an example of what I mean. You can, <laughs> you can busy yourself sweeping under a tree with thick autumn foliage, but since the tree's leaves will keep scattering down from above, even if for the moment you manage to get things neatly swept away, more leaves will only come falling later on, won't they? <laughs> In the same way, if you stop your original thoughts, the subsequent thoughts involved with the stopping of them will never come to an end. <laughs> so the idea of trying to stop your thoughts is wrong. Since that's how it is, when you no longer bother about those rising thoughts, not trying either to stop them or not to stop them, why, that's the unborn Buddha mind. That's what I've been telling, telling you about just now in such detail. Weren't you listening? <laughs> <laughs> If you weren't, it's a shame. <laughs> they say it so simply, you know, just don't be bothered. <laughs> it's sort of like washing away a tomato ketchup stain with more tomato ketchup. You know, you're always left with the stain. <laughs> I often thought of like a radio met metaphor for this. When I was doing a lot of sitting, it just seemed like it was a, like there was a radio in my brain. You know, the thoughts would just go on and on and on and on and on. But it really started to occur to me that this couldn't possibly be me. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, things just, just seemed to just go on and on and on. They didn't, some of them weren't even my voices. I mean, they were foreign languages that I didn't even know. You know, it just, <laughs> it just seemed almost impossible. So when I used this radio metaphor to um, one woman who I was speaking with, she said, she said, well, what I want to do is go down to the radio station and hit the announcer over the head. <laughs> but then she says she only comes home to, f- to find out there's a new announcer. So that's actually not going to work. So it seems that what's being said is that we need to treat our thoughts as friends. And our thoughts are friends. They just give us information about our world that we live in. Yet it's not the final word. It's not the final word. We really need to look carefully at how much we take what our minds say as being the final word. You know, the thought that says, I think it's this way, so it must be this way. You know, this attachment to these views and opinions. You know, when you said, we think well, she, is, she is an angry person. You know, we really believe that. Or this food is terrible. Or this retreat is so serious and depressing. Or when we tell ourselves, I'm just getting more and more stuck. I mean, we have to be very careful about how we're talking to ourselves and, of course, how we're talking to other people. Not to just accept what we hear in our minds or not just to accept the words, the language, the formation of language. Thought, which is language, words, speech, it, it has the ability to fix, to limit. When you label something, it creates boundaries. It creates a category for something. If I say the word bird, you see an image in your mind or you have a feeling, you get some sense of what I mean. It already creates some kind of boundary. This, but not that. By, by its very nature, a word draws a boundary. It, it defines, it's limited. In the, in the way that it shapes, it excludes other possibilities. And if I become attached to these descriptions, to these concepts, and think that's the only reality, then they become the on, only reality and they block out the revelation of a more expansive reality. They're just narrow and fixed little concepts. So we just keep pointing at dropping the concepts for now. Dropping the concepts, dropping the stories. Not stop thinking, but putting space around the thoughts. See, here's where the language gets very difficult. Putting space around the thoughts includes maybe feeling more of the body, feeling the physical sensations in the body, listening to sound, expanding out, getting a sense of more of the space. 
rather than just being caught in tight little feedback loops of thinking. You know, expanding out, feeling life, feeling the environment, tasting, smelling, touching, feeling the senses. These are the things that often get neglected in our daily lives. Just get caught up in the thinking, thinking, thinking. So we say put space around the thoughts means expand out, feel more of what's going on. And that's actually a lot of what goes on here. We create the conditions for that kind of expansiveness to happen so that you can feel more of life itself. So that thought doesn't get, doesn't get the exclusive power. Everything isn't just directed through thought. So something else begins to take over. There's awareness of other events. And, and begin to become familiar with awareness itself, with this expansive space of awareness. And in this space, there's the possibility for insights to arise, discoveries into things that you may not have known before, seen before, realized before. Perhaps insights into some of our questions, questions that we talked about in the first night, questions about the meaning of life, What is all this about? Who am I? And really begin to ask these kinds of questions here. And the spiritual inquiry can take place. The inquiry into who is this experience happening to? Who is being aware? Perhaps we can have an insight into really how little we know. How little we really know about anything. And on the first night I talked about dropping into that don't know mind from Zen Master Sansanin. Don't know. Who are you? Don't know. (laughs) Staying with don't know mind. It's different than ignorance. Don't know mind doesn't mean ignorance. It doesn't mean delusion. Ignorance encompasses not only an absence of knowledge, but also a distortion of it. With ignorance, things appear in a way in which they don't exist, like the rope and the snake. That's ignorance. With ignorance, there is clinging and grasping, which then solidifies the distortion and sets it up as something real. That's ignorance. When we take something to be real, which isn't real, 
like clinging to the idea that was a snake. Like clinging to the concept of I. I am, fill in the blank. I am this kind of person. I am that kind of person. I am this body. That's a distortion. That's ignorance. But staying with don't know mind, we don't know. We really don't know what's going on. This meditative, meditative not knowing is free from grasping, free from distortion. And out of this wisdom that knows that it can't know, thoughts lose their power. In a way, when we stop looking to the mind for the answers, we really know that it's not going to be in thought. The thoughts begin to lose their power. Little by little by little, we just stop going to the thoughts for the answers. It's sort of like if we stop giving food to a plant, if we stop giving nourishment to a plant, it's going to die. It's going to starve. And in the same way, if we stop giving nourishment to our thoughts, they will starve and they'll die out. So it's a different twist. We don't have to stop the thinking. We just have to stop believing in the thoughts. Believing in the thoughts is like giving them food. But the more we starve our thoughts, they die away. Instead of insisting that things exist in a certain way, this attitude accepts their mysteriousness. This not knowing, this kind of don't know mind is simple and relaxed. It retains a naive, childlike openness, kind of a sense of wonder about things. If we have this don't know attitude, we're free of any fixed conclusions that we have about ourselves, about other people, about situations. And then we're free of viewing ourselves in a confined and fixed way, and therefore we're free of viewing others in a confined and fixed way. We can allow ourselves to be who we are and allow others to be who they are. And in this we can discover this freedom, this freedom to be, the freedom to allow others to be. And in this don't know, we are free to discover who we really are, when we don't have the fixed ideas about ourselves. And this is really the ultimate question, this question of who am I? Because the answer to this brings the answer to the question, how can I be free of suffering? How can I be happy and joyous so that I may be able to help others to feel happy and joyous? Because once one knows who they are, 
all suffering comes to an end. It's the end. And the interest to know your true nature, that intensity of the desire itself to know will take you home. It's that intensity that takes you home. And home isn't somewhere else than where you already are. You were waiting for that, weren't you? (laughs) And that's why we keep asking you just to be right here. Just to be right here with what's happening. Not to discriminate, not to idealize, to set up one experience to be better than another experience, but just to be here now. So you can know that you're home. Have that direct experience of being home. I'd like to read something by Stephen Batchelor, who many of you know. He lives in Totnes, From the Faith to Doubt. He says, a meditative attitude is nothing new or alien. It dwells deeply within us all. Except now it is a field which increasingly, increasingly lies fallow and ignored. It is not something that we have to bring from elsewhere and introduce to our lives. It is already present in an embryonic and sporadic way. It may come to us unexpectedly in glimmers and hints. It is vaguely recognized as a distant, barely known possibility which may nag at us like the fragments of a dream that refuse to be recollected yet refuse to leave us alone. We need to recognize this fragile attitude and then care for it and nurture it as we would a child or a seedling. Meditation does not add anything to life. It recovers what has been lost. It is a growing awareness of what our existence is saying to and asking of us. It is something fundamental that has become obscured by our infatuation with a separate ego and its endless calculations and melodramas. Meditation is to allow this attitude to shine through, to acquaint ourselves both slowly and abruptly with what is both our origin and culmination. So meditation allows us to become acquainted with what's already here. How this separate ego is created and its endless melodramas that bring along pain and suffering. Meditation allows us to get acquainted with ourselves, with who we really are. But how do we see our true face? How do we realize our true nature? I'd like to share a story with you that was told to me by my teacher in India. He told it to a group of us who were with him. His mother lion was with her newborn in the forest. And a poacher came by and killed the mother and left the little baby 
lion cub all by itself in the forest. The poacher came along, when he, when he came, he skinned the lion skin of the mother and he left the little cub. So the man came, a man came by with his donkeys so they could drink in the lake. And when the man saw the little lion cub all by itself, it took it back home to take care of it. And this little lion grew up with the donkeys. It ate with the donkeys. It made friends with the donkeys. And all it knew was donkey life. (laughs) (laughs) One day, the man took his lions back to the same pond. And the lion was a little more grown, a little further along the way. And the lion was eating grass with the donkeys. It was braying with the donkeys. It was acting like the donkeys, because it didn't know any different. Another lion came by, and it was shocked to see this this, this lion there. (laughs) Because after all, donkeys eat lions. Wait a minute. Lions eat donkeys. (laughs) Lions eat donkeys for food. So he couldn't understand what this lion was doing with the donkeys. So So the lion chased the donkeys away and it grabbed this little lion by the neck and it wanted to take it away. But this little lion said, No, no, please don't eat me, don't eat me. I want to be with my brothers. I'm just a donkey. Please let me go back with my brothers. And the the older lion said, You're not a donkey, you're a lion. (laughs) Well, this lion, this little lion, had never seen its face. So it really didn't know what this other lion was talking about. He really thought he was a donkey. So the older lion took him to the lake and wanted to show him his face, to show him the truth of who he was. So he looked in the lake and he saw that he was just like this other lion. He saw that he was really a lion. So the older lion said, if you're really a lion, roar the lion's roar. And he roared the lion's roar and he realized his true nature. But he was never a donkey. He was always a lion. So we can't become what we already are. If you take one drop of water from the ocean in the palm of your hand, what do you have? You have ocean water. If you put it back into the ocean, what is it? It's ocean water. But if I think that I am the drop separate from the ocean, this is a problem. And you made this choice. This drop has exactly the same nature as the ocean. It is not separate in any way.
another piece of prose from another Tibetan Lama, Geshe Raptan, the, uh, the Song of the Profound View. The gains and losses of pleasure and pain, the increase and decrease of good and bad, the changes in the four seasons, and the variations produced by the four elements are incessantly appearing from moment to moment. These, however, are like images drawn on water or ripples on a pool which are incapable of remaining forever. Ripples do not go beyond the nature of water. When they arise, they arise from water, and also when they dissolve, they dissolve into the water itself. Likewise, all those various things I just mentioned do not go beyond the essence of clear emptiness. These events incessantly appear in dependence upon the kindness of that emptiness itself. And even when they finally cease, one cannot say that they remain here or go somewhere else. It seems that they certainly just dissolve or disappear into the sphere of that clear emptiness. All events that arise are like images drawn on water or like ripples on a pool which are incapable of remaining forever. They arise in dependence upon the kindness of emptiness itself. What's being said needs to be intuited, needs to be sensed. It can't be known through the intellect. The mind is completely useless on these matters. <laughs> Someone was once asked what realization they had into this. Could he explain it? Could he describe it? And he said, when the mind went to look for the answer, it didn't come back with the news. <laughs> it really can't give us the news we'd like. And yet, somehow we keep thinking that the intellect, the mind, is the only way to know, the only way to discover what it is that we're looking for. But the problem is that the thinking mind will never be satisfied. It will never be satisfied with any answer. The function of the thinking mind is to discriminate. But in that discrimination, it cuts up oneness into bits into parts where there are no parts, no divisions. The thinking mind cuts up oneness into parts, then picks and chooses what it likes and doesn't like, and attaches itself to its preferences and doesn't let go. 
The mind cuts up oneness, but wisdom cuts up the mind. Mind is the problem, nothing else. But yet, since we have this numerous amount of paradoxes, mind is also the solution. Because the mind wants to be free. It's looking for its home. And it will keep flowing towards its source until it merges with its true self. Just like all the rivers flow to the ocean and don't come back. It'll just keep flowing until it finds its source. And then it will be quite happy where it is. Benkai, the 17th century Zen master, again, he says, the main thing is to realize this Buddha mind. Originally, there isn't anything wrong with you, but from just one little slip, you switch your Buddha mind for thoughts. See this, and in the twinkling of an eye, you'll easily go right back to the unborn Buddha mind. In a twinkling of an eye, (laughs) no time in that these events in the world the experiences these thoughts these images sensations sounds they're just like the waves on the ocean arising from vastness and going back to vastness the sounds, the sights, the experiences that come and go. Let them play as waves play on the ocean, and then they won't trouble you. Because you can't stop the waves of the ocean. Where there are waves, just let them be there. Because if there's no waves, you can't surf. (laughs) so enjoy the waves play in the waves and if you know how to play with the waves then you can enjoy life let's sit for a few minutes together Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.